0: Welcome to the Managing Happiness podcast, helping you to find your true purpose, bring out your A-game and cultivate the right habits. We're interviewing experts, authors, and thought leaders who are here to share their tried and tested methods that will help you to thrive in life. Here's your host.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Managing Happiness podcast, where we help you to be on your personal A-game. And today I have an absolute delight of a guest here who is Name is todd herman he's an award-winning author of the alter ego effect he's a performance advisor to athletes leaders and public figures he's the recipient of the inc 500 fastest growing companies award and he's also my business partner and up coach he's an amazing human being and he can really help you to be on your mental a-game this is why we have him on the show today todd thank you very much for
0: being here david i'm happy to be on the The show with you
1: awesome so you know the concept of managing happiness where we help people to figure out their habits how to be on your personal a-game how to be productive, and you've been coaching a lot of top performers on being on their A-game. So I'm curious, what do you think is the most valuable thing you can share with the audience that
0: helps them to be on their A-game? Well, one of the first things that I go to when helping people with their A-game is, I want to know who it is that we're talking about, okay? And it might sound strange to someone that's listening when I say that, but what people really need to realize about how we all show up in the world is, The Todd that's sitting here right now, the world and how I show up is based on context. If you ask me, like, how are things going in my head? I might think, well, is he talking about my family life? Is he talking about my work life? Is he talking about my health? Is he talking about like, so when we're talking about helping people find and reach new levels of performance, I want to know, am I going to help you with your business? self? Is it your personal self? And even the personal self has as many different roles that we play. So we as human beings play many roles in life. And when you start to see yourself that way, you can start to make more targeted choices on the areas that you want to improve, as opposed to, I just want to get better. That doesn't mean very much. And people have been stuck in that cycle for hundreds of years, as opposed to seeing that, no, there's Todd, the business guy. And even in the world of business, there's Todd, the promoter and the salesperson that needs to happen to grow businesses. And there's Todd, the guy who's the coach. And am I working on those skills? Or there's Todd, the CEO, need to work on my leadership skills there. So that has been one of the more powerful concepts that I've helped people with.
1: And if you break it down into like the standard, I guess, like one is like me as an individual, and I guess maybe it's health, it's relationships it's complicated. Like, how would you break it down if you give somebody a template, you know, like a worksheet? I guess here's business, here's you, here's family, here's like, what are the different Davids that I want to think about?
0: Because I have such a deep and rich history in the world of sport, just my world, I I will say like, anytime we're trying to improve the area of like health and wellness, I just call it the athlete. So there's David the athlete, There's David, the CEO or the leader or like whatever someone. So now we bifurcated into like the business self, essentially, or the career self. So we've got the athlete self, the career self, and then we have the personal self. So even on the habits app that we use inside of UpCoach, the way that I organize my day is through three identities. There's my athlete habits. There's my CEO habits and there's my dad habits. And because those are the three most important areas that I'm most focused on right now. Now, someone else might not have dad in there, they might have their husband or wife habits. And it's and even on my calendar, I schedule my day based on not activities, but the activities nested under the identity who's showing up for those activities. So my calendar, when you look at it on Google is there's the CEO portion of my day, there's the dad portion of my day, and there's the athlete portion of my day. And so when I'm eating, that's an act it's of the, my, athlete. It's the athlete, exactly. Because the athlete's job is to fuel and make choices that is going to serve the entire ecosystem of my different roles and identities that I have. So I guess the, the athletes
1: from a healthy egoism perspective is the most important one, right? If you're stressed out, if you're sick, then you can't be there for your business or for your family.
0: And again, those are just my choices of names that I give and someone else can use their own choices. But I mean, I've been sharing the, even that little tactic right there of looking in and using your calendar as a way of you looking at it through the lens of your identities that you have, the roles that you play in life for 12, 13 years that I've shared that starting in probably actually seven, so 15 years ago. People are like, this, is, this has been one of the most transformational ideas and new routines that I have in the way that I work in my day. Uh, I also have like my,
1: actually, it makes sense with, with the self. I have like f- family, I have different color codes. Green is family time, and then green is also me time. And then I have like for different businesses and different activities, I have different colors, but I'll probably rework that because it makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. I've got another friend who is one of the top meditation people and sort of like wellness humans on the planet. And in her world, instead of it being athlete, she calls it her spiritual self. So how does she feed her spiritual self in the day? Like what are the choices that she makes on that side of things? And again, three isn't the only way. Like my, my pie chart is three. Some people have four, but that's just a, a really useful tool that you can use to start to Feed each one of those choices that you've got.
1: You have this book called The Alter Ego Effect, which we maybe can talk a little bit about so people have context for this. Do you have like spelled out how the CEO taught, how the athlete taught, and how the family taught? Like, do you have like different vision or mission statements in there or like a manifesto? That's, you you or, nailed like, it. How,
0: how do you? You nailed it. I mean, I talk about it in the book. I mean, I tried this when I first started getting into it at a very young age like personal development and I was ambitious and, you know, I wanted to make an impact with my life and did some bunch of personal development stuff. And I'd get to these questions around, hey, what's your mission for your life or what's your vision for your life? And I found them so difficult to answer because there's so much content that's there because there are so many sides of myself. But when I started separating out my different identities and seeing myself as having multiple selves, which we need to get into so that people can understand that this isn't just my preference. This isn't my opinion. This is based in actual science as to why we're using this particular tool this way. The moment I had Todd the athlete, the mission statement for Todd the athlete became a lot easier to write. The mission statement for the dad became a lot easier to write. And same thing with the CEO or the leader. And then even when I got into my business and then there are certain roles that I'm custom built to go and win on. One of them, I've been speaking on stages since I was 10. And that's because I was in a club called 4-H, which is like agricultural boy scouts. And a part of being in that world is you gotta do a speech every year on stage for your club. And then you, if you win that, then you graduate through to regionals and divisionals and all this kind of stuff. And when I was 10, I actually won first place. So when I started getting into business, the natural place for me to try to grow as a channel for myself was to go and speak because I knew how to do nothing else. I wasn't good at, you know, any <laughs> other types of marketing, but I could go and speak like that felt comfortable to me. So then it became, okay, well, what's the mission for Todd, the speaker who goes out there? Because even though there's the CEO and the leader who sort of tries to encompass all roles in the business, the reality is there's other roles that I need to play inside of on that field. And speaker was one of them. So now I had a mission statement for me as a speaker. And I can tell you, I know for a fact that the person who's listening to this, as you're engaging with this idea, you're like, oh, I'm, actually, that is a lot easier for me to create mission statements. So now it's not just one single mission statement for my life. I don't want that. I want many mission statements based on the roles and how I show up in the world.
1: This makes whole sense. Actually, in the Managing Happiness course, you kind of create your main mission statement, mission and vision statement, and your core values. And there's also an area where you create your roles. And like two days ago, I actually sat down, like defined, said, okay, each role should also have a mission and vision statement. But I'm actually going so far to kind of remove the main mission and vision statements to have like a more more balanced outlook of life. Could also help me because I'm like very focused on work. And initially, I actually create magic happens to be a better husband, to be a better father, to get these other areas of my life un- under control because it's, it's easy for me to only focus on the business side. But this will definitely help me and will help people to do the course to define these different missions and visions that you have and
0: how you want to show up. I know that you're also very familiar with the whole idea of the wheel of life, right, where whether it's, you know, whether you've got. 10 little categories on the pie chart that you're tracking, you know, health, wealth, relationships, or, or whatever it would be for someone, right? Well, when you start to look at those categories through who is actually showing up for those different ones, and when you have a mission statement for each one of those different roles that you play in life, it's a lot more practical for you to use the wheel of life tool because if you're only focused on your work goals or your work habits, well, then it's obvious that the rest of that wheel is going to be very broken and it's going to be a pretty clunky ride for you as you move through. That's why I try to keep things to three or four on my pie because trying to focus on too many at the exact same time. Yeah, it's is,
1: you, you lose control. When people do the Wheel of Life in the Managing Happiness course, they define three areas of their life they want to improve you know because it's like it's, it's impossible to do more and actually i started to shrink down the wheel of life because i think family relationships and social life the three of these elements they're kind of the same it's relationships kind of breaking this down and also people always want to either improve something in their relationships something about finance meaning career or or making money or health you know this is like kind of like the main things that kind of looking back through everybody who took managing happiness it's kind of always in these three realms so we're in the process of simplifying the wheel of life a little more
0: Well, it's funny that you bring that up too, because, you know, we were talking about the alter ego effect and, you know, for the new person who might be listening and has never heard of the book before, I mean, that's what I became well known for in the world of sport was I started my sports performance and mental game training and coaching company in 1997, you know, started out at $75 for a package of three sessions (laughs) and they were in home visits with, you know, young teenage athletes helping them with developing their mental or their inner game. And, and it was aligning to what I called the triune athlete, the mentally, emotionally, and physically tough athlete. And most of the focus is always trying to develop you at the physical level of your skill sets. But are you actually working on your emotional skill sets to keep yourself calm and centered and on the court with composure? And then, or whatever the field might be for you. And then are you, are you working on your mental skill sets of, you know, strategically understanding your game having great preparation and planning and routines to help finally get all your capabilities out onto the the court, the field, whatever it might be. And about five years in, after I started working with like better and better, higher quality athletes, pro athletes, Olympic athletes, this theme started coming out of the best of the best who had the most consistent performances and were achieving, you know, just dramatically different results than other people in their sport would talk about having a persona, another identity that they'd step into or an alter ego. And so I started developing this process and system. And it's because it's what I used when I played sport. It allowed me to play at a higher level, despite the fact that I'm not physically gifted. My strength was really my mental game. That's how I kind of fell into this world. But the point of all that was that as this alter ego idea started to take form and shape, I became like the go-to person around the world to start building alter egos for people, a performance identity, like to really put the you that's sort of walking around all the time on the sidelines and then ask yourself, no, on that particular field, what's the version of you that if you showed up on it, is custom built to win? And a lot of times what happens is you got to pull out some of the things that you carry with you in your everyday life. Perfect example is the example what I share in the book is pro tennis player. She was widely regarded as always being the athlete or the, the tennis player who should be winning major tournaments but isn't winning major tournaments. I started working with her and I was, you know, really trying to like, you know, spin the proverbial dials on the safe, trying to figure out what's her combination that's going to allow her to, you know, crack it open and and release all this stored up capability. And we were sitting down at Penelope's, which is an amazing breakfast place in in New York New York City, the best BLT, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich in New York. And the bill came and it came down and they set it on the table and she went to go reach for it, but it was set near me. So I grabbed it and I said, no, 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 I got this. And she's like, no, 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 you got, you've paid for the last two. Let me pay for this one. And I said, no, 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 it's it's okay. And this was during the US Open at Flushing Meadows. I said, no, no, seriously, I I got this. It's no big deal. And she got really angry with me and she is like the sweetest person. And and then I realized in that moment, aha, now I know what's causing the issues for you. Her driving values in life was fairness and justice. That's what drove her, fairness. And I have said this on so many stages, so many people in the audience start to squirm because so many people, fairness is actually one of the core things that drives many, many people. It's actually one of my core drivers is fairness because I hated it when people played political or bureaucratic favorites when I played sport, you know, like just all sorts of stories that would be there. But she was taking fairness out on the court. And what she was doing was because she was just so good and she worked so hard, she would get up on her competitor and she would start to beat them. She would unconsciously start to take the old foot off of the gas. And in sport, as we all know, and the same thing in business or anywhere, momentum is everything. So now the other player gets a couple of points, starts to build up some momentum for themselves. Momentum begets confidence. So when people are looking for confidence, what they really should be looking for is momentum because momentum creates confidence. And so now when you've got someone who's got momentum and some confidence and they're competing against someone that, you know, they might even fundamentally know is better than them, momentum plus confidence over a certain period of time creates certainty. And certainty is when you just have this known belief that you can win. And when you've got someone, now the playing ground is equal. That, my client, could be way better skill-wise. But when it comes to performance, there's an, uh, there's an element of alchemy to all of this. There's science here, but we're trying to lead to alchemy, where there are still some unexplained things as to how people are able to perform how they perform. So long story short, once we removed that value of fairness, and what I said to her was, listen, it is actually you being very unfair to that other athlete by you not going out there and performing to your best because what happens is maybe it's a close match and you still win or they beat you which is what happens more times than it should they have a narrative and a story in their head that is false because they didn't actually get the full experience of what it's like playing against you so that's you being very unfair to them what you need to do is go out there and leave it all out on that court so that that person can walk away with the full experience of what it's gonna have to take to be at your level, that's fairness. So I needed to take her fairness and not get rid of it, but adjust it and reprogram it. Sometimes we do take fairness and we say, listen, this performance identity in this particular field of play is not about valuing that particular value. I mean our values pretty much run across all of our identities but there are times when one specific value because of your relationship with it the the bad narrative or definition you have for it can get in the way so I want to either remove it or I want to tweak it so that it's going to dial up a different volume for that particular identity.
1: I think to some degree I I lose in sports games because I don't I mean I'm not a professional athlete by any means but when I play with a friend or with somebody and I see it really means a lot to them. I kind of like take my foot off the gas, you know, versus just kind of pushing hard. To.
0: Because it doesn't mean anything to you, right? That's my problem with a lot of the stuff that's happening today, where they're trying to make athletes or uh, a young athlete who is highly competitive, make them feel bad because they are highly competitive. No, it's how they're built. Like me at a young age, I was highly competitive. I was the shortest kid in my class. Always, I was a like a total runt. You know, probably 65 pounds until I was in grade seven for crying out loud. But man, when I played sport, I was a beast out there. And again, this isn't propping me up and saying I was the greatest athlete in my entire region. No, but I had uncommon results for my size, but just winning and competing hard meant so much to me. And I had people who tried to make me feel bad for that, but it was built into my DNA. Like I came out that way. I'm sure I was competing with the other kids in the uh, maternity ward for who could put the soother in their mouth the fastest. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I probably was built that way. And that's what is super fun about the work that I know that you do and that I do when it comes to helping people is I want to help people not feel bad because of the way that they're just built. And now it's like using it to a real advantage to you. And, you know, because I don't know, I think there's more stuff that's out there that's causing people to feel like they're. Defective or they're wounded, and I'm not here to fix you. We're here to refine.
1: And I also like Adlerian psychology versus Freudian psychology, just kind of figuring it doesn't matter what happens. We're just going to, this is what it yeah, is. I got we'll chills. just like
0: figure out. <laughs> it's
1: dead. 100%. 100%. Like, let's figure out how we can get better and not dig in the past. What I also love when it comes to habits with the alter ego effect or with like kind of being conscious, like painting the picture of like who you are is. People always ask me like, hey, isn't it hard for you to be vegan? You don't drink, you don't eat bread, You like all these things that I'm doing. Isn't this super hard? But for me, it's not hard because this is how I see myself. Not doing this would violate who I made myself to believe I am. And uh, a mutual friend of ours has been struggling with losing weight and getting in shape. And he was like, we were talking about this and he's like, I don't get it. You know, I... I I work like a madman. I can get up at 3 a.m. and work till midnight, but I can't translate this to eating and working out. And he sees himself as a successful, hardworking businessman, but he also sees himself as a foodie and a, a comfortable person. And now he switched this and said like, you know, like he s- sees himself as a healthy person and this healthy person does not, works out on a regular basis and doesn't eat any crap and this helped him to transform himself and not always, you know, start a habit. It kind of goes well and then you always fall back into the the old yeah. the old ways. Yeah.
0: Well, A, I just love that you brought up Adlerian versus Freudian, and that's a completely separate three-episode podcast series that we could do on the broken world of the psychiatry and psychology world. But what you've done is you've used a term called decidue. Decidue is the Latin root word of decision, which and decidue means to cut away. And so what you've done when you're shaping your own identity is when you say, like, I am a vegan. Vegan is a label. And when you're looking at crafting your own identity, it's labels. Labels help to create identity. Like me, I am Canadian and American because, you know, born in Canada, I have a very strong identity towards being Canadian, but then I lived all around the world and moved to America. And so I take the healthiest parts of those things. What I don't like about Canadians is the apologeticness of it. And so I've got so many friends, who are Canadian Dan Martel, who is a good friend. He said, when, every time he introduces me, he said Todd's the most un-Canadian Canadian you'll ever meet because he, he's not necessarily you know whether it's soft spoken or, or whatever."
1: Well, that's that's the directness from your
0: German heritage. You know, you kind of yes, like that's right, that's right, and, and that's another one. I mean, uh, when the World Cup happens. I cheer for G- Team Germany. I mean, I've got a very strong deep root that goes back there as well. But by you taking a look at who am I, and you say, "Well, I am a vegan." Well, a vegan is going to make a certain type of choices. You know, I am a a non-alcoholic drinker. Those are all labels that help to make choices for you. So that's one way to go about it. But I would also say to that mutual friend that, you know, you and I both have and care deeply for is, well, let's also employ momentum. The reason that he can get up and work so hard is because he's flexed that muscle for decades now, right? He's gotten that routine. And that's the one thing that a lot of people miss about changing behavior, which is a very Adlerian approach. Instead of you trying to like figure all the psychology stuff out and you know building a vision for yourself, why don't we just get you to start taking small actions? Because once that feedback loop starts to close, you're going to start to see yourself as someone who makes good food choices. Like even me, I love great food, but I also don't binge on it. So I have a very solidly disciplined approach towards amazingly tasting food, whether it's mac and cheese or whatever. I'll have some of it, but I'll have some of it. So many of us have really bad relationships with our plate because as kids, depending on what type of family you grew up in, your mom and dad said what? you're not leaving you gotta the, finish table the plate. To plate. You got to
1: finish the plate or it's going to rain tomorrow. And it yeah.
0: always rains in Germany. So you, yeah. <laughs> you <kids>. <laughs> <laughs> totally. or they make you feel like, you know, they're starving kids in Africa or, you know, all these different things. And I fought my parents. I mean, I was a stubborn little bugger when it came to that stuff. So if I order a meal at a restaurant and it comes, I don't sit there and think I have to finish all of this. That is a big shift. It's a small behavioral shift, but man, does it ever make a big difference in someone's life? So yes, I'll still choose to eat, you know, what someone else would say is unhealthy, but it is the the fact that I don't finish the entire plate that helps me out. So that's what I would just say to, you know, our buddy. Yeah. And also, I guess, know thyself. For example, I, if I do something, I do
1: something, you know? So if I eat bread, I eat a lot of bread. You know, if I drink coffee, caffeine coffee, I drink like, I don't know, 10, 12 cups a day type of thing. So I know about myself that for me, it's hard to control it if I'm doing it in a proper proportion. So I just like, I just cut it away. I said, okay, I'm just not doing this. Like kind of light switch on and off. Then it's very easy for me to do this. Flip the switch, but like the moderation part, eh, not so much. When I want to get in shape, I decide, okay, no simple carbs and then I lose weight. But if I was like, hey, yeah, on the weekends and here and there, then I always go like back to my bad behavior, you know? so... I always ask people on this, on this podcast, what's your favorite coaching questions? Because I love to ask myself questions, especially when I plan my week or when we plan the quarter with the team, that questions give you clarity or in, in the beginning of the day. So I'm curious, what's your favorite coaching question that helps you to be on your
0: personal game? Yeah, that's an easy one. Then. That's an easy one. Who's showing up? Right? Like when I leave my office domain for the day and I'm going out into the world with my family, who's showing up? Because... This is what makes this really powerful for people. When you really see yourself through the lenses of different identities, these different selves that you have. If you're someone who is um, an ambitious and hardworking person, you're flexing a habitual muscle of a particular type of person for six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 hours of your day. It would be very easy for you to start to believe that that is you. Oh, that's just me. Like, you know, I'm very direct because you're direct when you're working in in business or something like that. So it would be very easy for me to believe that I am a challenging personality type because when I'm working with the big personalities that I end up working with, whether it's privately for the last 25 years or in the group programs that we have or when I'm doing training and because of the topic category that I'm in where I, I really do need to challenge people's assumptions about what it is that they think that they know to be true about the world and themselves. Because most of us are carrying around paradigms that are given to us that are just patently false. You know, one of them being that there is one me. No, there's not one you. (laughs) There are many versions of you based on fields of play that you might be going on to, context, stages that you're heading out to, roles and the people that you're around. So I could be easily perceive myself as being a challenging personality type, but that isn't me. It's a very useful persona that helps me win in my field. You know, a challenging personality type isn't going to work for 99% of the listeners that are here because their worlds are different than mine. But when I go to my kids, I'm like, well, who is that? So if I could custom build a dad, that's going to be phenomenal to these kids. And okay. So even that it's like, okay, well, what would it mean to be phenomenal to the kids? Well, kids need someone to help coach them, nurture them, encourage them, you know, create a safe and secure environment for them because at my kids' age, they still don't even understand the concept of me and my, like, it's it's all just, you know, me. Like, they don't understand the world around them as much. And so, well, I would want to be patient. I'd want to be kind. I'd want to be fun. And I have these five qualities that I've outlined in my head. And then I go to, and this is where the alter ego stuff comes in. And I go to, all right, well, who do I already know that embodies those traits? It might be one, it might be two, it might be three sources of inspiration. And they could be people, they could be characters in books. It could be movies, like all sorts of places that we can grab inspiration from. Mr. Rogers. Yeah. And so mine goes to Mr. Rogers who most people that are outside of America and Canada don't really know, but he was a children's entertainer, had a show on public access television in America for 50 years. And it was all dedicated towards helping young kids navigate a challenging world, you know, because they're always told, just thinking, if you remember back to me, kid, everything was like above your head, you know, everything's out of reach. Oh, I'll tell you when you're older, right? Like you hear those messages all the time. So that means you're living in a world that apparently wasn't built for you because you're too stupid to understand it. You're not emotionally smart enough. And, you know, Mr. Rogers has navigated that so well with kids. But anyways, he's my source of inspiration along with my dad. So now when I answer the question of who is going out there, I know in my mind of a picture of who is going out there and what this honor is going back to now the science of this. 70% of our brain is dedicated to the visual cortex. Okay, and so when you ask someone, you and I know this after running our company with Upcoach, that if we don't give our development team a clear idea of what success is going to look like with how we want something to function, we might not get exactly what we want. You know, it might do the job, but it might be janky or whatever the case is. So that visual cortex is so important and alter egos honor that part of the structural uh, way that our brain is built because I have a model and a picture in my mind of exactly who it is I'm supposed to look like because it's Mr. Rogers and my dad. I know what that is. And I'm trying to move myself towards that. And I understand that, okay, well, what would be the behaviors that I have? So when I answer that question of who is showing up or asking people that question when I, it stops people in their tracks. It stops them if they're unfamiliar with these concepts because they're like, oh, and no one's been asked that question before.
1: And it's it's so powerful. In, in your book, you talk about that people who are in the military or in the police force, they have to be super tough and aggressive, etc. At their work, and then they come home and they still carry this persona to their wife and to their their kids. And it would be super powerful for everybody who's in this field to get the Mister Rogers
0: thingy on. And it's it's not lost that when you take a look at the statistics of people in the military or the police, that they have the some of the highest divorce rates in the world of any profession. And they have some of the highest domestic abuse or violence cases, despite the fact that their jobs are to protect and serve and et cetera. But there is extraordinary power. And I talk about it in the book, and it's why in the book, in the chapter, where I talk about totems, artifacts, etc., that your uniform is really, really important, that you realize human beings have this exactly, we, as David puts on his glasses, there's a psychological phenomenon that occurs in every human being called enclosed cognition. And enclosed cognition is this weird little trick that the brain has where because we have stories and narratives already built into our brain about the clothing or how someone looks or artifacts that people wear, like for example, when a doctor walks into an office with a white coat on, like a white doctor's coat on, Or we see someone with a white doctor's coat on, immediately our brain goes to, oh, that's a doctor, respectable, smart, because we know that it took them at least eight years plus in order to get that white coat, probably methodical and detailed and careful. Well, what's crazy is if you put on a white coat, what enclosed cognition is because you already carry the narrative of being detailed, methodical, careful, and smart. When you put on a white lab coat or a white doctor's coat, your brain encloses you in the cognitive traits and abilities of being smart, detailed, methodical, and careful. So if you ever had a task in front of you that required those skills, wearing a white lab coat will immediately increase your performance without you even trying, without you even trying. A study was done, it came out 19 months ago, around two years ago, around eyeglasses. And what they found in the study that people who put on glasses while taking a test, increased their IQ points upwards at the very top end of 12 points. IQ has been longly believed to be a fairly fixed thing. And it is, it's pretty fixed. You can increase it, you know, a few points up or down, but by simply putting on a pair of glasses, you become studious. Because we've built up a narrative in society that people who are wearing glasses are nerds or they're smart or whatever. And so those police officers or military professionals Their governments and their societies have built up a big narrative about what it means to wear that uniform. In North America, we see ads all the time, you know, for the Marines or the Navy or the Air Force or whatever. And you see the uniform and what they don't do. And I've done a lot of work with Navy SEALs and Green Berets and Army Rangers and spoken at Army bases around America and Canada. And I tell them when you get home, make sure that you go home either without that uniform on. Or you change out of that uniform and you get into a new uniform. What's the new uniform? And that uniform should have uh, meaning given to it for the new identity that you're stepping into, the new role that you have. And it's been my favorite group to like help navigate because they, they do. They live in very intense situations and people don't appreciate the hellish type world that they have to look at every single day.
1: it's so so powerful i mean everybody who hasn't listened to or i mean i only listen to books or read the alter ego effect do yourself a favor and get it it's going to help you tremendously to show up as as the right person and actually revisit this and see what are the three or four personalities that i'm currently shaping because i've been i kind of only had like one personality just like very refined this personality but it definitely helps to show up differently for, for the different situations, especially dealing with my daughter or being in business. Yeah. Very, very powerful
0: stuff. The key thing here that it honors Dave is that at our core, our greatest superpower is our creative imagination. The other animals on the planet show compassion. They show caring. They show loving. So that's not something that's unique to human beings. And I'm not saying that, that it's not powerful. I mean, obviously that's still powerful stuff, but the thing that makes us really unique is our creative imagination. And the reason that so many people will come to us, like in my training worlds and you know, our programming is because one of the things that I hear a lot and whether it's multimillion plus entrepreneurs or leaders, or it's someone who's just starting out or it's someone who's struggling somewhere is a word that comes up a lot, two words, is stuck or trapped. That there's something about my world and my existence where I just feel really stuck. And most often, when you peel away the layers of that, it's because they're stuck in seeing themselves as one self, one identity. Or that feeling of trapped is that, you know that you've got more within you, but it's just not getting out there. And that could be because you're really caught in the trap of worrying about what other people are thinking about you, trying to impress other people. I talk about it in chapter three of the book, the trapped self versus the heroic self and how the trapped self creates an ordinary world for you and the heroic self creates an extraordinary world. Now, what's key to understand about the extraordinary world and the ordinary world is there's no less amount of challenges, difficulties, challenges, or struggles that show up. It's not about creating a rose-colored world of like just beautiful meadows and rainbows and lollipops everywhere in the extraordinary world. No, it's the difference is that in the trapped self world of ordinary, most of your motivations are that of trying to impress other people. So it's an outside in approach. You're so worried about what's happening out there. And then you're determining your behavior based on that, as opposed to the heroic self world where you're choosing to show up how you want whether people are going to like it or not. But this is what I want to go out and bring to the world is this energy or this persona or whatever, because I really feel like it's going to help me bring all of my capabilities out of me. Uh, And so when you're engaging with this idea, the alter ego, the thing that it really honors is this creative imagination that we as human beings, our great gift is we can we can reinvent ourselves, we can recreate ourselves. We are shapeshifters. we are not trees. An oak tree will always grow from an acorn. Acorns will always grow into oak trees. Pine cones will always create pine trees. Human beings, if they were born out of a toxic environment, do not have to turn into toxic people. So I'd say probably the most compassionate, kind, and wonderful people came out of toxic environments. Well, what does that break then, David? Because one of the really core ideas that's been passed around in self-help books for a really long time, garbage in, garbage out. Human beings are like computers. We're nowhere near like a computer. A computer, you plug into it, you type into it, it's going to produce what you type into it. Well, if that was true, every toxic environment would always create what? Toxic people. Every single nation that has nowhere near the resources of a first world country would always produce people that would stay mired in that. No, some of the greatest leaders, entrepreneurs, you know, what have you, creatives, artists have come out of nothing. So it's not garbage in, garbage out. We have the capacity to change. And so when you start to reacquaint yourself with this creative expression, which is what the alter ego, the concept allows you. To most usefully go and employ life becomes a lot more playful and at the end of the day david i talk i try to repeat this over and over and over in book even though many people come to this concept because they're dealing with challenging things at the root of what makes this so powerful is there's an attitude of playfulness behind it because alter egos playing with identities it's what we did as kids that's why the concept works so well everyone's played with the idea because you did it when you were a child and now all you're doing is you're bringing this concept back to the surface in your adulthood, which is going to help you transform, change, you know, and, and move in the direction that you want just with a lot less friction. I'm a recovering
1: introvert and I worked hard on this. And now doing this managing happiness thing, usually I'm always like more in the background in businesses. I like to play puppeteer and not be the face of anything. But with managing happiness, I consciously decide that this is the right thing for me to do. And I will rewrite my alter ego for being like the, the outgoing presenter, keynote speaker versus staying in the background, being the puppeteer.
0: Well, and as someone who's been around you for a long time and been around people who know you, the more David Hensel that we can get into the world, just the better it is. Because, you know, it's not lost on me when people reach out to me and they're like, well, this just happened this week. I sent you the text message of it because David's coming to an event that I go to. It's a very curated event for entrepreneurs and leaders. It's by nomination only so I nominated David to to be and the person who puts on the event sent me a text and he said dude I just got off the phone with your co-founder and holy cow like it was more holy crap I think it was no wonder you guys are going to go and take over the world with Upcoach like he's impressive so anyway but I hear that all the time from people regarding you so yeah the more you that we can get out there the better it is <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll, I'll do my best <laughs> I'll create an alter ego Todd, thank you very much for being on. People can find you under Todherman.me and they can find you under um and the And also auto effect is like you know you find it on, on Kindle, Amazon, you know, audiobooks, etc. Do yourself a favor, check it out. And yeah, thanks for coming on. This will not be the last one because you have a lot more good stuff to share that's highly applicable to what we're doing here at Managing
0: Happiness. Yeah. So happy to be here, man. Thank Any you, brother. Time. See ya.